Hello and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we tell you about strange things that happen in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Hello. Hello. So, today... Yes? <laughs> I have a story that got away from me, as it usual. did. It yeah. really did. We said this last time you hosted one I or know. two. I know. Um, <laughs> this time, I feel we were very justified because we had sort of heard ideas about the story from another podcast. They did not talk about it for nearly this long. No, not at all. Well, they talked about a sort of a ghost story related to it, which I'm not really going to cover. We might bring it up when it's relevant, but mm. it's not really relevant to much of it today. And we have a lot to talk about. Okay. So... Last week, you told our listeners about the entrance of the gladiators. I did. Uh, and how it's actually the clown music. It is. And this inspired me to do a story about clowns. Oh, God. Well, okay, I feel like some of our listeners will not welcome this. <laughs> Probably not. Um, and it's quite possible that the man in this story is the reason they might feel uncomfortable about clowns. Is it Pennywise? No, 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 it's not. Is it's it not Stephen a, King? No, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't do an episode on that hack. <laughs> All right. No, I'm joking, of course. Um, no, I am talking about the father of modern clowning. Okay. All right. Now, when I saw- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've just realised we've done- Two fathers of things, right now. Yeah. One of which is the father of modern clowning. The other is the father of the potato. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> I feel like we should do the father of something, you know, less funny at I, some point. I suppose, but this is somewhat the premise of the podcast. That's true, that's true. <laughs> well, so this story, when I first started researching this, I kind of thought of it as a sad sandwich. Okay. As in, it starts off a bit sad, then gets pretty happy, and then gets sad towards the end. Okay. It didn't quite end up like that. It starts off sad, yeah. gets a little bit happy, and then there's a lot of sadness mixed in with that until the end. Oh, God. So, I'm not going to lie, this is going to be a bit of a tragic story. So, this is as much to prepare you as it is to prepare our listeners, because I know sometimes you can get... A bit emotionally affected by things. Well, sometimes you still haven't seen why the story is sad, even though I keep telling you why the story is sad. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> no. That's what you made me sound like. <laughs> it's the woman with the alien baby. It's so oh, sad. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Well, this week we are going to talk about Joseph Grimaldi. Good name. Yeah. But before we talk about him, I just want to give... A bit of a history of his family and a bit of a history of the kind of theatre at the time. Okay. Because one of the popular sorts of performances was pantomime. It was probably the most popular genre in Britain. Okay, before we get started, when was this? Uh, so we are talking about the 18th century. Okay, cool. You may continue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You are absolutely right to call me out on that. I really should have said the year. Theatre at the time. <laughs> when? Theatre in the future. <gasps> We're doing future history. Anyway. So, the most popular genre of theatre at the time in Britain was pantomime. Okay. And there were a number of reasons for this. It had a strong cultural tradition. Mm. And there was also a legal prohibition in theatre against dialogue. What? When? Yeah. 
This is during the Regency era. Spoken dialogue was permitted on just three London stages. Okay. And if you wanted to have dialogue in your play, you had to send it off so that it could be approved by government officials and censored if necessary. Oh my god. Was this literally, was that the reason why you weren't allowed to have dialogue in your plays? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that explains why Shakespeare had so much of a boom in that time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think so. But pantomime, contrary to kind of what it is now, it had basically no dialogue at all. Okay. It was mostly physical comedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were songs in it which were allowed. And people often had catchphrases as well. And that was like... They could justify that because it's not dialogue. They're just saying one thing. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. It's considered a sort of mixture of nursery rhyme and fairy tale, which it still is. I mean, that's still sort of modern pantomime. Uh, But it featured sentimental ballads, topical and often satirical humour, elaborate stage sets, patriotic songs. Nice. And also... What is described here as leggy young women playing juvenile leads and male comics playing old ladies. I mean, that's still true. true. I remember the time when our leggy young friend Kira got to play the male, oh, yeah. young male lead on what was, to be fair, a satirical pantomime. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And the whole thing did have a sort of surrealist atmosphere to it. So mm. you can see that there are some similarities, but... Uh, People I've read compare pantomime of the time more to silent films than what we would consider like traditional pantomime now. Yeah, it sounds like they're not going like, he's behind you or anything like that. Well, they might do, but it's it's not in the same, not like back and forth with the audience so much. Yeah. Uh, More physical comedy and then, you know, kind of working out the story from there. And I guess like, yeah, you're not going oh my goodness puss in boots we've reached london no. you're just being like yeah mimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, our listeners can't see but amelia just did a fantastic acrobatic tumble to demonstrate perfectly i might add that puss in boots has arrived in london thank you yeah so i'm going to talk about a specific sort of pantomime at the time generally mm. uh, which was the harlequinade Okay. Which was a British comic theatrical genre based on the Commedia dell'arte mm-hmm. and centered around five major characters. You can kind of think of it as a bit of a sort of serial thing. So people would do their own productions, but they would use these established characters. Okay. And these five main characters are the Harlequin. Yeah. Who loves Columbine. Yes. Columbine being the second one who has a greedy and foolish father called Pantaloon, who tries to separate the lovers uh, and is in league with the mischievous clown. Yep. Clown being the fourth character. Right. And the final is the servant Pierrot. Yes. And they usually involve in uh, chaotic scenes with bumbling policemen and just mischief aplenty. Right. And these people still aren't talking. They're just doing their actions they're doing their actions they're singing songs and maybe saying a few catchphrases okay so a lot of people nowadays study commedia dell'arte as part of their schooling like in Mm. early drama years so the year sevens i taught did commedia dell'arte for a while so they probably like if you're listening and you're a youngish person you probably know what we're talking (laughs) about absolutely well 
Joseph Grimaldi's great-grandfather was a man called John Baptist Grimaldi, and he was actually a dentist. Okay. And an amateur performer. Who what moved- a combo! I know, right? He moved from Italy to London in 1730, ostensibly because he wanted parts on the stage in London. Right. And he actually performed in the Harlequinade in many places, generally as the character Pantaloon. Okay. That's like the grumpy father figure, right? Yeah, the grumpy father figure. Uh, He was opposite a man called John Rich, who played the Harlequin. And John Rich was uh, one of the most noted performers of the era, as well as a theatre producer. Okay. He actually managed the Theatre Royal on Drury Lane between 1714 and 1761. Okay. So he had a pretty long stint there. Uh, He performed the Harlequin as a completely silent character without any catchphrases or songs at all. Okay. And this was kind of considered... A bit of a masterstroke, really. Like, he really managed to bring the character to life by having him say nothing at all. Mm. This was actually because uh, <laughs> because John Rich had an unappealing voice. <laughs> Amazing. But everyone was like, oh, he's so cool. Yeah, exactly. He really thought about this. He's so avant-garde and he's just like, well, actually, it's because my voice is not appealing to the audiences. <laughs> well, good for him. Yeah. So, uh, John Baptist Grimaldi did pretty well for himself, and uh, he had a son, Mm -hmm. Giovanni Battista Grimaldi. Is that not the same name? Uh, No, the last one was John Baptist Grimaldi. Okay. This is Giovanni Battista Grimaldi. Sure, all right, fine. (laughs) And uh, Giovanni performed professionally. That was his main career. Dentistry is gone from this family now. They're a performing family. Okay, cool. I mean, if you're performing in Drury Lane at any time, I would assume you've made it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Although he actually left England to tour around France and Italy. Oh, cool. I did see some sources say that Giovanni was locked up in the Bastille because of a scandalous performance he gave. Okay. But the only source I could find was a biographer of Joseph Grimaldi who was kind of sensationalizing things a bit. Right. The other problem is that Giovanni Battista Grimaldi shares his name with the 162nd Doge of Genoa. Okay. <laughs> who was around about the same time. Right. I don't think they are the same person. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, although it could be an amazing like conspiracy theory on the same level as, oh, some wealthy bugger was actually Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. It would be pretty fantastic, but I think it's unlikely. It sounds almost impossible, <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, I will say I can believe the story of Giovanni Battista Grimaldi getting arrested because after his father, John Baptist, introduced his son to John Rich, Giovanni defrauded John Rich before fleeing to the continent once more. Oh my god. Yeah, Giovanni was not a great person. And nor was his son. (laughs) Okay. He had a son, Joseph Giuseppe Grimaldi. Okay. And they yeah. need to get away from that j sound. I know, right? They love it. They really do. Uh, and I will say the apple did not fall far from the tree in terms of being a bastard. Okay. Joseph Giuseppe, generally known as Giuseppe or the Signor. Ooh. Uh, he was a skilled performer and he ended up playing Pantaloon in the Theatre Royal. Okay. Just as his grandfather had done. Right. He was highly praised for his skill, and he actually became the ballet master there. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've been thinking about ballet this whole time. Yeah. 
Well, just in terms of having a performance that is mute and largely pantomimed. Like, yeah. that is how ballets tell their story. Yeah, and generally in these sorts of pantomimes, there were a lot of dances, and there mm. probably was ballet going on. I mean, a fair amount of it. Yeah, but like ballet, like when you're in an opera, there's like a little chorus yeah. of people. Yeah, absolutely. But I've already said that Joseph Giuseppe, not a great person. He was notorious for his sexual incontinence. Okay. He was known to have had 10 children. Oh, my God. By at least three women. Oh, my God. And one of these being Joseph Grimaldi's mother, Rebecca Brooker. Now, this bit is gross. Rebecca Brooker was born in 1764 and was actually apprenticed as an assistant to Joseph Giuseppe. This means that when Joseph Grimaldi was conceived, his father was about 60 and his mother was about 14. Oh, man. Yeah. Come on, theatre people, change it up a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I will say Joseph Grimaldi seemed like a much nicer person than his father. So don't worry about that. This isn't going to turn out, you know, he's an evil person. Uh, In this case, the apple did fall far from the tree. All right. Well, for the first couple of years of his life, Joseph Grimaldi lived with his mother in a slum. Yeah. Because Giuseppe basically didn't want to know. Yeah, well, he's got 10 kids. He's not going to take responsibility for all of that child support. No, definitely not all of it. But once he had a second son, he decided that he actually wanted to raise them. Okay. So he left his partner at the time. Right. And moved with Rebecca Brooker and his two sons, and possibly his daughter as well. Okay. Or one of his daughters, rather, to uh, Holborn. Okay. And from accounts, he was a dreadful father. You surprise me. Yeah. He was a strict disciplinarian who used to regularly beat his children. Mm-hmm. And enough for that to be noted in the mid-1700s. Yeah, exactly. So it's a lot. Yep. He also definitely wanted his children to follow in his footsteps and take on the family business of performing and also really wanted it to happen early. He began teaching Joseph at the age of two Whoa. to play the characters in the Harlequinade. Uh, though apparently he didn't really like pay that much attention to his other son, John Baptist, at right. this stage. Like he kind of encouraged him to perform, but not with the sort of ardent fervor that he wanted Joseph to do it. Okay, interesting. He even brought Joseph onto the stage at the age of two for his first bow and first tumble. Wow, which just sounds like some more abuse to me, probably. I mean, maybe, or maybe he means like a somersault thing. I mean, yes, given something that's going to happen later, he definitely does not have a like a regard for his son's safety. Okay. At the age of three, Joseph Grimaldi was cast as an extra in a production with his father. At the time, it was very common for quite young children to be cast as extras on <laughs> yeah. Drury Lane Theatre. Okay. I was just thinking, like, that wouldn't fly these days. Oh, no, it would not. Uh, on Boxing Day of 1781, he was cast as the little clown in a pantomime show. That sounds cute. And it was so popular that the run was extended until March the next year. Oh my god. Yeah. This is a Christmas pantomime. Yeah. <laughs> That's really long. Yeah. And the poor be- kid. I know, but apparently he loved it. He continued getting different roles okay uh he he was cast i mean it's kind of a bit of typecast because you know very small child yeah he was cast as imps fairies and monkeys 
Okay, makes sense. <laughs> and the thing was, he was popular with a variety of audiences. Like, there are two main theatres in the early part of Grimaldi's life. The Sadler's Wells Theatre, mm-hmm. which is where he made his debut, and performances were catered to a sort of more working-class audience. Okay. And the Drury Lane Theatre, which catered to the wealthier. But Grimaldi enjoyed success at both. Okay. He did also receive an education. He was sent to Mr. Ford's Academy. Okay. Which is a boarding school in Putney that catered to the children of theatrical families. While he was there, apparently he struggled with reading and writing, but really excelled in art. We actually have some of his drawings. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. He also, during this time, received further training from his father, learning performance art, acrobatics and tumbling, and sword fighting as well. How old was he? Uh, oh, good lord. I don't know exactly at this point. Hard to tell. He was definitely less than nine, I'll say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was probably about five, six. Great. Yeah. Sounds safe. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of safety, mm-hmm. uh, his father Giuseppe still used him in his own performances. On one infamous occasion, he brought Joseph out onto a stage dressed as a monkey and with a chain around his waist. Right. His father then swung the young Grimaldi around his head with what was described as the utmost velocity before the chain snapped and Joseph Grimaldi was flung into the orchestra pit. Oh my God. Yeah. I guess we can be glad it was the orchestra pit instead of like the wall. Yeah, absolutely. I will say a lot of Joseph Grimaldi's life, I haven't documented it all here. He he battered his body. Yeah. This is just the sort of start of it. Like, some of the physical stunts he did, like, it's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Now, Giuseppe was, you can imagine, never the most stable man. Mm. And as he got older, he suffered from increasing neuroses. He developed an obsession with death. Okay. Sometimes he would feign dying in front of his children to see how they'd react. What? Which I can only... I imagine you can only do a few times before they're like, all right, Dad, get up. I know what you're doing. I mean, that's weird. That's that's like those people who fake dying in front of their dogs to film it for YouTube. I mean, it pretty much seems like that, doesn't it? Oh, that's really bizarre. I don't like that. No, I don't like it at all. He also paid his daughter the sum of five pounds mm. if she promised to decapitate his body after he died. <laughs> Why? Well, because his obsession with death was also compounded by the fact that he was terrified of being buried alive. Okay. So if you have your head cut off, you're pretty sure you're dead. Yeah. Like, there's no chance of you being buried alive without a head. I mean, that was a little bit of an obsession back in those days, wasn't it? Like, that yeah. was kind of the peak of, or like, we're starting to get onto the peak of that idea being a thing and people like trying to work out ways that you could signal that you were still alive if you were down there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, Giuseppe took a more, like, I guess, pragmatic approach yeah. to it. He's not like, I'm going to put a little trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not <laughs> like, please rescue me. It's like, make sure I am dead. Yeah. Well, he did end up dying in 1788 after suffering from a bout of dropsy. Oh, man. That's a disease I'm glad we don't get anymore. Well, I mean, it is still a thing, but yeah? we don't call it dropsy. What do we call it? It's an edema. Oh. It's basically fluid buildup in the limbs. Yeah. And it's usually the result of failure of a number of different organs. So 
it, it's not like a disease in and of itself. It's more of a right. symptom. Okay. Um, it was a thing that a lot of people used to suffer from. Like, I know Elizabeth I used to get yeah. dropsy. I've always had this weird fear of getting dropsy. I don't know <laughs> I why. Well, it is pretty grim. I mean, yeah. your limbs kind of swell up and become very soft and you can like push them in and they stay like you got, you got a little divot in your leg or something like that. Yeah. It's pretty grim. But in these sort of days, it was generally meant something fatal was happening. Yeah. Now, what this did mean is that Joseph Grimaldi, at the age of nine, was now considered to be the breadwinner of the family. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. And he he had some mixed results. The manager of the Drury Lane Theatre was actually sympathetic and paid him one pound a week, as well as employing Joseph's mother as a dancer. Okay. Now, one pound a week was above asking yeah. rate for performers at the time. So pretty generous. That sounds pretty reasonable. But it was offset by the fact that the Sadler's Wells Theatre cut his pay from 15 shillings a week to three. Why? Because he was young and he didn't have his father representing him anymore. Oh, I see. So they could yeah. get away with paying him a lot less. In fact, they stayed at this rate, three shillings a week, for three years. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. It's pretty grim. That is grim. And I mean, his mum's only 23, so she can hardly defend yeah. anyone at that point. I know, right? Uh, this also meant that as a result, the family were forced to leave their home in Holborn as they couldn't possibly yeah. pay for it anymore. And they returned to slum living. Great. Joseph- Slums in the Industrial Revolution are not where you want to be. No, absolutely not. I mean, to be honest, I don't, there's not many places I want to be in the Industrial Revolution. It seems like a grim time. Yeah, just, but uh, slums is the worst. It, it is the worst. It is the worst. But there's just... It always feels like there's a lot of effluence going on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But slums, you're going to experience that more so. Yeah. And then possibly a beer barrel will explode and drown you, like that one time I mentioned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh, really. <laughs> now, Joseph's brother, uh, John Baptiste, who I think was also about nine, he lied about his age and managed to fake his way onto a ship as a cabin boy. Wow. And this did at least help to reduce the family's expenses. But this was pretty much the last time Joseph ever saw his brother. Oh, man, that's awful. I know. It's pretty grim. Despite his continued employment, Joseph didn't really see much of an advance in his career. Giuseppe might have been a really awful father, but he was a good manager. Joseph ended up working basically as an assistant to the new clown of the Harlequinade. Okay. A man called, a French man called Jean-Baptiste Dubois. Not another Jean-Baptiste. I know, right? Well, this well, is Jean-Baptiste. We've had Giovanni no, Baptiste. And we've had John-Baptiste. Yeah. <laughs> but this is Jean-Baptiste Dubois. Great. Can we call him Dubois? We will call him Dubois. Thank that's, God. That's what I've got in my notes. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he's working for Dubois. Yeah. Now, despite being his assistant, in his later life, Grimaldi would insist that he had not learnt a single thing from Dubois. Wow. And had actually refused to be his student. (laughs) Okay, Jesus. Now, this is because Dubois' clown was more reliant on gimmicks and prop comedy. Okay. And Grimaldi did not like this, even at a young age. He thought (laughs) it was kind of demeaning, I guess. Okay. In 1791, the Drury Lane Theatre was demolished. Oh. This is something that happens to the Drury Lane Theatre a number of times over the course of its life, usually after a fire. Okay. 
But in this case, I don't think so. I think it was just falling apart and they decided better to tear it down and rebuild it. All right, fair enough. Uh, As a result, Grimaldi set about to make his name on other stages around London. And by the time the Drury Lane Theatre was rebuilt in 1794, he was 15 years old and successful enough that he was cast in his first major role since his father's death. Okay, awesome. In 1796, after rave reviews of a performance, he was cast in a new Parisian play adapted for London audiences. And these audiences were hugely impressed by his acrobatics and his sword fighting skills. And this led to Grimaldi being cast as Pierrot. Okay. One of the Harlequinade. And this was in the Christmas pantomime of Robinson Crusoe. Okay. Which, so the pantomime of Robinson Crusoe appears a number of times in the story of Grimaldi's life. Right. I have never seen a modern pantomime <laughs> no. of Robinson Crusoe. Well, I can kind of understand why. Yeah? Because of Friday. Oh, yes, that actually is a thing later. <laughs> <laughs> so for people not familiar with Robinson Crusoe, it's the story of a man who's shipwrecked on an island and he finds a native person there who he calls Friday because he meets him on a Friday and then basically makes him into his slave. Yeah, pretty much. So... Fun times all round. Yeah. It's based on a true story. Hmm. Well, in the same year, Grimaldi met his future wife, a woman Ah. called Maria Hughes, who was the daughter of the proprietor of the Sadler's Wells Theatre. Okay. Uh, Grimaldi's mother, Rebecca, actually introduced them to each other, and they struck up a romance. Ooh. In 1798, the Drury Lane Theatre suspended its tradition of the Christmas pantomime. Oh. I don't know why. They just seem to have gone, right, we're not doing it. Okay. And of course, this forced Grimaldi to once again leave behind his stable work at Drury Lane and seek more roles elsewhere. Okay. And the thing is, once again, this really worked for him. Despite being cast in roles that were generally considered low comedy, Mm. he flourished and received further rave reviews. And this led to, in 1799, he was wealthy enough that he married Maria. Mm-hmm. And with the help of his father-in-law, Grimaldi managed to secure several roles and eventually, in 1800, was cast as the clown in the Easter pantomime. Yay, and this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah. Now, just a note about this, because the thing is, the idea of modern clowns generally comes from Grimaldi. Okay. And so there are a few differences when you look at these early days of the clown in the Harlequinade and sort of what we would think of, what we would recognise today as a clown. Mm. The clown is actually a country bumpkin character who generally turns up in the big city and is overwhelmed by everything and like yeah. gets swept up in one thing after another because, you know, he's a bit dumb because he's from the country. Yeah, I always assumed like early clowns is like the comic relief character in Shakespeare, right? Yeah. Like, usually it's somebody who's a bit stupid and exists to say stupid stuff, or I assume do stupid actions by the time we're here. Yeah, pretty much. And this is played opposite the Harlequin, who was a more streetwise and urban character, who, like, has the knowing of what's going on, knows the city and how to, like, live in it. Right, okay. Uh... Whereas the clown comes along usually like in ragged servant's gear, maybe with like straw in him. Everything to really make him look like a country bumpkin. Okay. 
So it surprised audiences when Grimaldi came out on stage in a garishly coloured costume decorated with diamonds and circles and fringed in tassels. Yeah. Now, for over a century, the outfit of the clown had been what I'd said before, the country bumpkin ragged servant's outfit. So this was probably a bit shocking to audiences, really. Yeah. And what was... They're like, that's the Harlequin. Yeah. And what was probably more shocking was the fact there were actually two clowns in this play. Oh, okay. The second, played by Jean-Baptiste Dubois. Okay. Who at this point, I kind of think of like Grimaldi's rival. It's like a Pokemon game where he's like, (laughs) you go around and occasionally a rival turns up and they've got like a similar... Pokemon set to you. Is this like in Amadeus? You've got the one guy who's very established and he's sticking with the old ways and then you've got the new garish one. (laughs) Well, I mean, they were both trying to do different things, really. Yeah. Um, In fact, in some ways, Grimaldi was the more traditional clown, uh, whereas Dubois was, you know, reliant on props and gimmicks Mm. and things like that. Uh, Grimaldi was more, at this point, more appearance was different. Okay. Uh, although I think Dubois was also dressed in this garish outfit. Right. I don't know if this was actually Grimaldi's choice or if this was the theatre sort of going, we're going to do something different with this <laughs> pantomime. Okay. The audiences, however, made up their mind about who they preferred. Right. They preferred Grimaldi. Yeah. Dubois' use of gimmicks and props in the role were dubbed as being artificial. How dare you be an artificial clown? I know, right? In your low form of theatre. I know, this is the thing, like, these pantomimes were taken quite seriously by reviewers, it seems, and critics. Well, I guess and they've, audiences. Got, they've got nothing else to review. Yeah, I suppose so. But I guess the audience is like, we know what we like, and we, yeah. can, we can see when you're just playing up to us and okay. like that. So they saw Dubois as being kind of artificial, whereas Grimaldi really embodied the character of the clown, almost in a way stripping it back to its core comedic values. Right. And they really responded to it. Okay. So things were looking up for Grimaldi. Yeah. Unfortunately, tragedy struck. His wife and his unborn child died in childbirth in that same year. Oh, damn. And this hit him really hard. From the looks of things, and I know we've talked before about, like, it, it's difficult and probably a bit... Not dangerous, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, uh, to, like, diagnose characters from history. Yeah. But it really does seem like, throughout his life, Joseph Grimaldi suffered from depression. Okay. Uh, he was frequently, like, in conversation with his friends, he was very down on himself. Mm. And... He would usually have quite a grim attitude when he wasn't on stage. Okay. It's almost a stereotype. It's such a stereotype. It's the whole laughing on the outside, crying on the inside thing from clowns, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it might well originate with Grimaldi, that. Okay. So after his wife died, whom he really loved, he was completely grief-stricken. And... Because he didn't have any other recourse, the only thing he could think to do was to distract himself from his grief. Okay. So he wanted to perform as much as he could, and this would sometimes involve doing two shows a night. Whoa, okay. And he's doing, like, proper acrobatics and stuff. Yeah. And not just that, this would mean finishing a show, sprinting across <laughs> London to the next theatre, right. and performing another set of acrobatic tumbles in his new- in his act there. Oh, my God. Now, during the day to occupy himself, he actually developed a new hobby. 
This was butterfly collecting. What? Yeah, I know. Weird one. Very weird one. That's... Okay. He was really successful, though. He managed to collect 4,000 specimens. Okay. Good for him. Yeah. London must have had more butterflies in it at that time. I know, right? I don't know if he, like, caught them himself or if he just bought them pre-caught. What, like a sort of stamp collection? I suppose so. Like, I can't imagine how else you're going to collect over 4,000 specimens of butterfly in London in a very short space of time. Yeah, interesting. Maybe he just attracted them with his very garish clothes. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, they think he's a flower. Yeah. <laughs> he also has bees around him. Well, unfortunately, this hobby came to an end when thieves broke into his house and in doing so destroyed his collection completely. Oh my god. Now, Charles Dickens, who was actually a big fan of Grimaldi, (laughs) wrote about the robbery, and he wrote that it was the most heartless cruelty and absent of all taste for scientific pursuits. Wow. Grimaldi decides that he's not going to rebuild his butterfly collection. It's too much, and it served its purpose. So you know what? He's going to take up a new hobby. Okay. Pigeon rearing. (laughs) Which, I mean, at least, you know, you've got more pigeons around. Sure. I mean, sure. Okay. What does pigeon rearing exactly mean? Like, what are you rearing these pigeons for? I'm not going to lie. I have no idea. Okay. Because that is the last I could find of Grimaldi's pigeon rearing hobby. Okay. So, (laughs) I don't know what it means if he's just, like, breeding pigeons. I mean, sometimes... so. I know that sometimes people nowadays do breed pigeons Mm -hmm. specifically for racing purposes. Like they do pigeon races. And maybe that's what he was doing. I could imagine reasons people thinking that pigeon racing was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, despite the grief in his private life, his professional life was looking pretty good. Uh, The Easter pantomime in which he had been the clown was so popular that the Drury Lane Theatre decided to restart the tradition of the Christmas pantomime. Oh, great. And Grimaldi was first cast as the character of Punch and Dubois was cast as the clown. But very quickly, they decided to change this and Grimaldi was given the sole role of the clown. Okay. Not just that, but the clown role was actually expanded. And took on some of the Harlequin's characteristics. Yeah. So the Harlequin became a less mischievous character and more like a romantic figure, I guess. Okay. Whereas the clown was entirely the sort of mischievous agent of chaos. (laughs) Right. Like just causing probably much of the comedy on the stage. Okay, so now we have created the Joker and Harley Quinn. Oh my god, we have. Yes. (laughs) Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know who played the Harlequin in this performance, so it probably wasn't someone that uh, that Grimaldi was very close to. No. I'm assuming <laughs> it's still a man. Almost definitely, yes. <laughs> now, this pantomime was so popular, it ran for 33 performances and saw an Easter revival. Wow. Yeah. Okay. At this point, Grimaldi was considered the leading clown in London theatre, and he actually originated several catchphrases, some of which are still used today. Go on. Here we are again. Oh, I know that. Yeah? I've seen that in a film called The Limehouse Golem. Ah, yes. Yeah. Which we've watched together. We have watched together, yes. And it does involve 
clowning of a loose sort, I would say. Yeah, but uh, this is before that. It's quite possible that the character in that, Dan Lino, took it from Grimaldi. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, There were many people who were inspired by Grimaldi, so I could see it as a sort of evolution from there but it is still used in pantomime today yeah i was thinking also it's used in a terry pratchett book yeah yes it's used in making money right when a character who is secretly a clown needs to open his magical wardrobe he says here we are again yeah and then it opens up to reveal his secret clown costume (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it makes a lot of sense yeah uh some of his catchphrases were a bit more simple okay Shall I? Oh. Yeah. Apparently said sometimes in a slightly demonic way. Okay. To which the audience is meant to respond, yes. yes. And then he does something stupid. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm not sure that counts as a catchphrase, though. Uh, they, apparently they count it as a catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. I guess it's because it's a call and response thing. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, obviously, Dubois was not very happy about being pushed out of the role of the clown. No. And in 1801, they had a clown showdown. Did they? Yes. I'm imagining this like, I don't know, WWE in the ring. He's <laughs> Dubois is there. He uses all his props, obviously. So he's got like a squirty bottle and also presumably a big chair with which to hit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Grimaldi. And Grimaldi is going to be there. He's just going to be one flippy boy. Yeah, fair enough. That does make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was in an 1801 production. They were both, they were cast as like the role of two clowns Mm -hmm. and they took part in a mock duel. Okay. And the stakes were who could make the most hideous face? (laughs) Okay. And even though this was like written for a play, this was a real sort of judgment thing. The audience were basically acting as judge. Right. And, and there was genuinely a sort of, sense of hey who do you prefer yeah every single time the audience preferred grimaldi okay and as such in subsequent productions grimaldi was always cast as the clown by himself and dubois was generally cast in the lesser role of pierrot okay I feel a bit sorry for Dubois now. Well, yeah. I mean, he doesn't sound like he was really that bad. He was just Grimaldi's rival and Grimaldi was just much better than he was. Okay. So at this point, we have Grimaldi established as the leading clown of London. Reviewers love him. Audiences love him. Theatre productions are basically forced to cast him as a clown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's basically got everyone to ransom. Now, what happens after that? We'll have to wait for next time on That Time When, because as I said at the beginning, this one rather got away from me. Yeah, you were researching for a solid two hours without looking away from your screen, as well as additional time beforehand. Yes, uh, thank you. I did do a a light time beforehand. But yeah, this uh, is a pretty big story. And I'm not going to lie, it gets to some really sad places. Woo! Including one occasion where I might have to do a little content note. Oh my God. it's It's pretty nice. So don't come back next week if you're easily upset. You know what? I'm going to cut that. I think it'll be fine. Yeah. It's just a suicide pact. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, stick around next time to find out who engages in a suicide pact. <laughs> oh my god. Do we 
we need to do a content warning for this outro now? Quite possibly. Mm. Well, thank you very much for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4 and suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us in getting some new listeners, it would be really great if you could give us a five-star review on whatever app device you are listening on. And thank you, as ever, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in this podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and push your two-year-old children to become clowns. Bye! Bye!